So let's turn back to Nehemiah and the goings-on in the rubble and the brokenness of the city of Jerusalem at the time. Um, it was really good. Let me bring them forward a bit. Here you go. Who needs PowerPoint? Yeah, steady. <laughs> I felt the room. <laughs> Who needs PowerPoints when you've got Lego reconstructions? And as for that car, God in a flying car, actually, Rowan's been surprisingly theologically profound. If you read Ezekiel 1, there is a vision of God on a kind of chariot with wheels in the temple. So there you go. Knew what he was doing. Anyway, that just came to mind. Um, that's not the sermon this morning. That's just how my mind works. Um, budding theologian in Rowan. I love it. Right. Uh, it was so fun to see these guys rebuild this last week. And they rebuilt it. I'll be honest. I thought there's no, maybe they'll just start a corner. They rebuilt it in record time. Uh, Harry was part of the little team, My Harry's Six. And I was amazed. I mean, it looks incredible. And they were so fast. Harry loves being fast. He is 100% sure, without any proof, that he is the fastest kid in his class. Absolutely 100% sure that he's the fastest runner. And he likes to tell me, Dad, I am the fastest in the class. That wasn't until he ran against his friend, let's call his friend Billy, shall we, this morning, uh, and discovered that Billy was faster than him. And this was slightly sad for a six-year-old heart. So he now says, Dad, I am definitely the second fastest uh, kid in my class. I love that. I'm not going to pop the bowl. I'm like, go for it. You might be. Who knows? He loves running around, loves being fast. Um, I don't know if you loved running around or being fast in school. Um, uh, I was... Uh, not particularly fast at the 100 metres, I'll be honest. I know it's a surprise looking at me here this morning. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was okay-ish. Uh, I was better at long distance uh, running, really. But my best friend was the fastest kid in my class. Um, my best friend, Ash, I remember. Uh, uh, but because he was my best friend, he was kind enough to join with me in the three-legged race. Um, can you imagine that? One of the slowest in the class tied to one of the fastest in the class. The uh, The scarf just tore off and... Ashley made it to the line, and I was still just starting, really. It didn't work very well. But the one thing I was good at was egg and spoon. Anyone done the egg and spoon race? Now, the good thing about the egg and spoon, this is about technique, not just speed, isn't it? And I discovered that if you run, basically like Mr. Bean, then you can win. You have to basically do these really long, or maybe it's Basil Fawlty, Ministry of Silly Walks, and you can win. All the fast kids used to whiz off ahead in a rush, and their eggs would spill everywhere. And I'd kind of like come from behind with these strange long legs and win. That's the only race I could ever really uh, win. But the key was not to rush. It was to take your time. And today, I, if we could bring up the PowerPoint, Grace, that'd be amazing. I, I don't want to talk to you about being fast. Or rushing. I actually want to talk to you about taking the time to stop and reflect. In fact, I want to give us an opportunity to stop and reflect this morning a bit as we do this. I wonder, do you stop and reflect enough in your life? Let's make sure this is working. Can we have some new batteries? Is that all right? I think these are dead because they um, be really helpful. Some triple A's, John. Have we got any? Any triple A's? If not, we'll just, I'll give you a nudge, Grace, and that'll be... Great, but uh, if you, none? No, no, that's fine. Um, Grace, next one, that'd be marvellous. We're talking about the moment where 
Nehemiah took an honest survey of the situation that he found himself in Jerusalem. And I just want to ask you whether you take enough time to stop and reflect in your life. And that's what I want us to do this morning. As we go through this passage, I want us to reflect on our own lives and our walk with Jesus. I want us to do our own honest survey. I'm going to be asking some questions around five key words. And I'm just going to leave just moments of space and ask questions just for you to quietly contemplate. And it might be that one of them speaks to you this morning or God speaks to you through one of these areas. Maybe that all of them God has something to say to you. But even if it's just one, what's the Lord want to say to you this morning? Because he will want to speak. I'm going to talk about memories. I'm going to talk about despondency. I'm going to talk about destiny. I'm going to talk about truth. The first word is simply notice. You see, the truth is, Nehemiah did do an incredibly fast job of rebuilding the walls. I don't know uh, if you uh, have read uh, through the book, but it took him just 52 days to turn the rubble into, uh, into ramparts. And we might want to skip ahead and go, right, what was the technique? How did he do that? That's next week. Nigel's going to be talking to us about how he achieved this extraordinary thing. But before we get there, what we see from today's passage is that speed was not Nehemiah's motivation. He didn't arrive in Jerusalem in a hurry. He didn't rush. He wasn't frantic. Before a single brick was lifted, he took the time to honestly survey the situation, to stop, to take stock, to understand, and to notice. For three days, we read, he didn't tell a soul why he was there and what he intended to do. He, he just sat among the ruins. He took it all in. And then without gathering a crowd, without the confusion of many voices and demands and what and why and when, he just slipped quietly out under the cover of darkness to make his own examination of the broken walls and to better understand the situation. Just him, a handful of others, he says, just the one horse that he was riding, quietly contemplating what was around them. Three days is not long, you might say. I guess it's not. But it was enough. The fact is he deliberately took time to stop and to notice. And in a world of such pace around us, of iPhones and technology vibrating on our pockets and on our wrists, telling us someone is trying to call with emails stacking up and deadlines and frustration all around, it's perhaps more important than ever that if we're going to be the people God made us to be, people who, like Jesus, hear from the Father, see what he's doing, and follow in his footsteps, then we're going to need to be people who learn to stop and take notice. Notice how we're really doing. Notice what's really going on around us. Notice what God's really up to and what he's saying. So as we start today, I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to take a moment to notice just now, right now. To notice this moment. I want you to notice, actually, that you're here or online tuned in. And I want you to notice just how significant that is. Because in our demanding, busy, modern life, it goes against the norm of society to be here this morning. Others, I hate to tell you, are having fun, visiting friends, watching TV, shopping, walking the dog. 
But you are here. I wonder why. Some would tell you it's a waste of time. Some would tell you it makes no sense. Just be a Christian without bothering with all this church stuff, some might even say. But you have bothered. And I simply want to say I'm really glad you have. Because I believe church is important to Jesus. I believe it's important for us and for you. I believe God is with us here this morning in a special way. I believe he wants to speak and will speak. I believe, just as every week, if we give God our time and focus, then we can all leave here changed a little bit more like Jesus. I believe it's significant that a group of people humble themselves before God every single week in this way and sit again under his word and invite him to speak. Just notice you're here. Think of all the things you're thankful for when it comes to church. I know it's not perfect. There are so many things that we need to give thanks for. Prayer, conversations, friendships, and what the journey was that brought you to be sat here today. And I don't mean the car journey on the way. What is your story? It means that you're sat here. I wonder if there's anyone along the way that you particularly come to mind who's been a great encouragement to you. Have you thanked them recently? I want to say to you, God bless you this morning. Don't give up on gathering together. It's a precious and special thing to gather in the name of Jesus in the way we do. So I wonder, how often do you stop and ponder what God's doing in your life? Can you just see if the next one is that question, is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got a question here. Do you need to prioritize spending more time prayerfully noticing? Do you ponder about what God's doing in your children's life and in your own, in your workplace, in your community? I don't mean worry or fret. I mean, ponder and notice and reflect. It's harder than ever, perhaps, in today's modern society. But do you need to prioritise it a bit more? Different times in my Christian walk, I've used a technique called the examine. I won't tell you all about it here, but it's a way of saying, Lord, I want to give more space to noticing in my life, in my prayer life. At the end of the day, end of the working day, you kind of sit down. And you say, Lord, I want to review over my day today, but I want you to do it with me. And by your spirit, would you just point out to me things that I missed? And you ask, Lord, where did I see you at work today? And you think about your conversations and your breakfast and your conversations. You're traveling to work and the way you cut someone up and were crossing the car. And you think about how you spoke to someone in the office. And you think about all of it, bit by bit. And you just say, Lord, where did I see you? And where did I miss you today? And Lord, open my eyes tomorrow to notice what you're doing and the opportunities you give me all the time. All the time. All right. So Nehemiah takes some time to notice. The next word I want to bring up, thanks Grace, is this one. Memories. You see, Nehemiah sneaks out. 
on his nighttime secret survey to ponder the state of the walls. And here's a map for those who appreciate it. I can't point because we don't have any AAA batteries. But I'd like to point with this. If we go to the next one, please, Grace. Um, I'll, I, need, I, need, I need like a stick, like an old, an old schoolmaster. Here you can see uh, Jerusalem at the time of the 5th century B.C. And uh, that's what this is. Um, so this is roughly, roughly the shape of Jerusalem when Nehemiah was there. And of course, the walls weren't there at this point. But this is the kind of, uh, of shape that the uh, city had uh, post-Solomon. So between Solomon and the time of Nehemiah, obviously the time of the exile, you can see it's like a, a long, thin shape. It's not the same as the city of Jerusalem today, which I can't point it to you, but the top left is a much bigger square that goes off up there. But this is what it might have looked like. And you can see, uh, again, I can't point it to you, but the west side is where... Uh, Nehemiah came out. It says that he came out of the valley gate. So he came out on the other side. He went round the bottom. He, he went near the dung gate, which we think probably spilled out onto a refuge garbage dump. Um, and there's possibilities that that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about Gehenna, this idea of a place of, 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 of a dump uh, and, and rubbish all there where they possibly even burnt rubbish. Um, he goes round and he walks back up and he goes to the fountain gate and he gets to this point at the bottom here and it's just too much rubble we hear. And so he gets off his horse and he continues to go along this valley and inspect the walls before turning back round and going all the way back again. If we could just go to the next slide, that might be interesting to some of you. This is modern day Jerusalem. This is how the city of David, as it's called biblically, would have looked and the shape. You can see top left is modern day Jerusalem, but this little bit hardly planted on and hardly used. This would have been the old elevated city. Um, and this is the bit that we're talking about that Nehemiah, the walls that Nehemiah was going to rebuild. You can see on the right hand side, the valley, the steep slope down that he went up and had to scrabble through on foot to see the rest of the wall. So there you go. That's what we're talking about. And we can go to the next slide back to this idea of memories. I simply want to ask you, and think about how that must have felt for Nehemiah as he goes around this city. As he abandons his horse because of the state of the rubble all around him. He goes on foot, scrabbling around, looking at the old gates, seeing bits of old wood charred and broken. He went around and looked at each gate, destroyed by force, now laying abandoned. I wonder how he felt. But each one would have held huge collective memory, perhaps not for him personally, but he knew these were places of significance, places where commerce and trade and conversations and families and children played. These were places that were once significant representations of God's blessing uh, and safety for those that lived in Jerusalem. They're now laid strewn and rubble and ruin everywhere. And he's picking himself through and trying to climb on the rocks and trying to get to see the rest of the broken wall must have been very moving for him and yet Nehemiah knew God was doing a new thing he didn't let the hurt of these broken memories stop him realizing that God wasn't finished yet there's something new God is up to and I wonder this morning do you ever look back at the past in your walk with God and feel things were different or better back then 
Do you ever ponder memories of former joys when you were more passionate or more optimistic or more full of hope? The good old days when things were done properly, you know? Does it sometimes feel that what was once is now lying in kind of ruins around you? This morning I simply want to say to you, memories are precious things. But sometimes certain memories and the way we hold them can actually hold us back. Sometimes God calls us to acknowledge, but then lay down the former things. Do you remember those words in Isaiah? Forget the former things. He says, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you see it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. It's God's people, we can't cling to former seasons. We can and should celebrate the past, but we cannot live in the past. We must not grip onto stones that no longer are functioning or bringing life. We've got to let them go because God is up to something new, wants to do a new thing with those stones. So we're discovering in this sermon series, God has not given up on us. He has not given up on you and he never will. His plans for us as a church and as individuals is not to burn out and fizzle out and lay in ruins. He longs and loves to breathe new life and to do new things in us. To rekindle the passions we once had in a new way. To repurpose the pain and the brokenness and disappointments we've experienced into something new and something beautiful. There's no point in hugging broken rocks and refusing to let go. Saying, God once used this rock to do a great thing. I won't let it go. Long after God has moved on and it's simply become a museum piece. Instead, we need to release them and let God repurpose them. So I wonder this morning, ask you a question. Take a moment to reflect if we can flick the next one. Are there old broken stones that you're still holding on to? Is it time you released them, gave them to God? Let him use them to build something new. Do you have memories of a time when your joy and your passion for the Lord was greater perhaps than it is now? Is it time for that passion to be rekindled afresh for this season? Just take a moment to think. The next word, and this is a short one, but is this, despondency. You see, having examined the walls and taken time to understand the situation, Nehemiah now decides, right, this is it. We can do this. It's time to act and finally tell people, thank you, Richard, what he's come to do. The secret is out. For three days they've been wondering, who is this guy with this extraordinary cavalry and army? He's arrived with the power of the prince of Persia himself, the king of Persia. What's he come to do? Is he going to speak peace to us or is he going to condemn us? Is the king on the move to destroy us and to stop our rebellious ways? Or is he here to bring comfort? Interestingly, remember Isaiah 40 says, comfort my people. It's written at exactly this point. Comfort my people whose city lie in ruins and whose hearts are broken. And Nehemiah's name actually means God or Yahweh comforts. So the Hebrew word is Nacham. And God says, comfort Nacham, my people. And Nehemiah's name is Nacham Yah. God is the comforter. So the comforter turns up and he brings these extraordinary words of comfort. He says, 
You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. But come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, what the king had said to me. You see the trouble we're in and so can I, Nehemiah says. Let's do something about it and get rid of our disgrace. It's really interesting to understand the words Nehemiah is using here. Having assessed the situation, Nehemiah recognizes that the main problem is far bigger than just broken walls. These walls represent so much more. He uses two words to describe the current plight of the resettlers in Jerusalem. Trouble, or rather the word should be distress, and disgrace. And they're significant words. Distress is actually the Hebrew word for evil, hara'ah. And in fact, the primitive root of the word literally means to spoil, to break to pieces, to make something good for nothing. Just like the walls, they were a representation of this distress. And Nehemiah realizes that in these broken walls, we see the work of evil. We see the work of the one who loves to kill and steal, destroy, as Jesus would later teach us. This is not just some inconvenient wind blowing the wall down, but this is the one who always intends ill for God's people. For them to live in distress and ruin is exactly what he wants, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He wants them to stay in ha-ha-ah, distress. What's interesting to note is that the people could have done something about it. The officials, the nobles, the priests, do you, do you read it? They're the people that Nehemiah speaks to. They were already there. They'd always been there. They had the resources. They could have done something, but they'd got caught in despondency. They'd kind of begun to accept, well, this is just our lot. It was 150 years ago. This rubble will never be rebuilt. They had lost the will to try. We've tried before. It failed. just want to ask you these questions. What have you let the enemy get away with for too long in your life? Has it been too long in a certain area? Enough is enough. Are there any areas in your life where you've let despondency take too great a hold? It's too hard. I've tried before. Let's reflect on those for just a moment. So now, from despondency, I just want to talk about destiny. Because the other word Nehemiah uses to describe the situation of God's people is this word, disgrace. The Hebrew word is herpa. And this means one who is rebuked and shamed, particularly in the sight of others. The, seat, the walls of the city, they were far more than just some arbitrary walls that protected the people. These were the walls that would bear testimony to the glory and name of their God and to the reputation of his people. And right now, both the walls and their reputation of the people were in disgrace in the eyes of the nation. This is the disgrace Nehemiah says, we've got to get out of this. They were considered her par, disgrace. And this would never do. Why? Because this was the very opposite of who God had intended his people would be, who God had promised and spoken over them that they were. You see, the enemy had tried to steal the destiny of God's people, to disrupt their original purpose, corrupt their God story. Remember, God had made that covenant promise with Abraham all those years ago, Genesis 12, 
I will give you this land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. This was God's plan for his people. This was who they were called to be. This was their destiny to be a blessing, not a disgrace. A berakah, not a herpah. There's the Hebrew two words. A berakah, not a herpah. A benefit. A gift that shines like a light to the nations around as they live out justice and mercy and worship and faithfulness to their God. These broken walls were not just their personal hurt or their own personal problem. They represented their loss of destiny, that they'd given up on their destiny. They had kind of just uh, thrown it away as it had been stolen from them by the enemy. God's people in the time of Nehemiah, Jerusalem was supposed to be a city on a hill, a shining example, a blessing to the nations, a testimony of the goodness of God. And that's exactly what the enemy had intended to steal. He'd broken down walls, but more importantly, he'd broken the people's spirits, their belief in what God had said about them. With this anti-gospel, this gospel of corruption rather than of rebuilding. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I've come that you may have life, Jesus said. And all through the world today, we see the influence, don't we, of the enemy at work. The pain and the suffering in our world. The violence, the war, the physical rubble, the emotional rubble, everywhere. And for the believer, the enemy wants to destroy, most of all, our belief in the destiny that God has spoken over us, has spoken over you, that you can be like Christ, that you are a child of God. And you're a person called to be a rebuilder and a blessing in this hurting world. You see, the gospel is not just for our benefit, folks. This morning, catch this. The gospel, Jesus says, is life in all its fullness. But when we believe this life is just about me and good things that I can acquire, that's when we get it wrong. There is so much to receive in knowing Jesus and becoming a child of God. There is so much blessing, hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and relationship and restoration and provision and healing. And yet that's only half the story. Like God's promise to Abraham, you've been blessed to be a blessing. That's your destiny. You are loved and now called to love, forgiven, now called to forgive, shown mercy, now called to show mercy, tenderly cared for, called to tenderly care. It's not been just about receiving, but always been about becoming the light of the world that Jesus declares that you and I are, that we as a church are and can be. The whole health and wealth prosperity gospel twists this, takes a half truth, and it basically tells you you can only really focus on your own benefit. And it tells you that life in fullness is a full bank account. But as we saw in the video this morning, you can be blessed and be poor. You can be a blessing and be poor. You can be blessed and be poorly. You can be a blessing and be poorly. Because things are different now. In the kingdom of God, God breaks in in beautiful ways with healing and provision but also he works through our suffering and our struggle and uses us uniquely, each one of us, in ways that only you can be used. You are called to be a blessing exactly as you are, as God uses you just as he's made you, even in the struggles you're going through. 
Think of the cross. It's no longer about a strong built fortress to say to the world we are strong. It's about Jesus hanging and suffering. And in pain and in struggle, he shows love and healing and grace and humility. I want to say to you this morning, you're not a shame. You're not a disgrace. You're not a harpoor, but a barakar. You are a blessing. And I believe God would want each one of us to step more into our God-given destiny this morning. To realize again and say yes again. I am actually blessed to be a blessing. I am called to be someone who encourages, that rebuilds, that loves, that listens, that shares. And so this word, I'm going to come into land now, by Nehemiah, rallies the troops, if you like. They catch this vision again of who God's called them to be. Not these people living in disgrace, but these people called to be a blessing And it breaks their despondency. They stand against the work of the enemy. They respond passionately. Let us rebuild. Come on. We can do this. And in that moment, they orientate themselves back towards God and his plans for them. They step into their destiny as those called to be a blessing. Just want to ask you, do you really know and believe you are God's masterpiece? This morning, created anew in Christ Jesus to be a blessing in this world. Is it time to rebuild and step back into your destiny? And if so, what are you going to do about it today, this week? And I want to finish with this final thought, truth. You see, the people are galvanized and they begin to rebuild the walls, but immediately, and Leslie did a great job of just highlighting this, the opposition came. The voices of doubt, the questions began. Because the truth is, folks, the enemy does not like it when God's people step further into their destiny. He doesn't. When they pray, he hates that. When they seek the Father's heart, hates that. When they galvanize themselves and start rebuilding broken walls, when they say yes to God, opposition comes. Here it was from all around. I won't go through who they are, but from the north, the east and the south. And Tobiah, whenever you see the word Yah in a name, it's Yahweh, the biblical Old Testament name revealed, personal name of God to Moses. And so Tobiah, one of the criticizers, literally means God is love. (laughs) And so he's from a family of believers and yet he's still comes and throws this painful criticism to the people and in the old days these criticisms would have worked because they say to the people you're rebelling against the king the king's going to hate this and in the old days they would have just put the stones down and gone yeah you're right despondency we won't step into our destiny but the truth is this time it doesn't work this time they fall flat why because nehemiah knew the king And he knew the king's words and he knew that the king had said, no, I am with you on this. I give you authority to do this. Go and do this and I am backing you. And friends, as we step further into our destiny and I pray each one of us and as a church are calling to be these rebuilders, these lights shining in the darkness, this city on a hill, just as Jesus called us to be. 
I want you to realize that there may well be opposition. The enemy may well say to you, who do you think you are? Matt's not talking about you, for goodness sake. Do you really think you're worthy to serve God and make a difference? Do you think you can impact your school or your workplace or your home or your family? The truth is, this morning, I want you to hear again the word of the King of Kings because we personally know him and he has given us his personal word that says, You are my child and I am with you and I have filled you with my spirit. I am for you. You are a light shining in the darkness. You have been made to bear fruit. You are a blessing, not a disgrace. Step further into your destiny, as my child, the father, would say. And make an impact on this world. Believe that you can in small ways and big ways. Whether you're struggling right now or whether you're not. Whether you're poor or poorly. You're a child of God. And you are called to make a difference. To be blessed and to be a blessing. And when the enemy speaks we can answer in the same way Nehemiah does. The God of heaven will give us success. We his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in his plans. Get out of here. Get away. We're not having it anymore. We're picking up the bricks and we're going for it. This morning, some of you need to pick up the bricks again, the stones. Let down the old ones that you've been clinging onto, and pick up the new ones and start to build afresh and to step back into your love, your passion, your faith, your trust, to start remembering again that you are not a disgrace. You are a blessing. And you can be and will be today, tomorrow, at work, wherever you are. Take time to notice, time to listen, time to see. Hear the Father's voice, not the voice of opposition and the enemy. And believe the Father's voice. When he says, you're my child, come and step further into it. It's time to rebuild. Amen.